This is the Design Goggles podcast on DNV Radio. Checking out architecture and design is a pretty good way to keep track of how the world changes. Designers have a unique way of looking at cities, and Seattle is a city that's changing fast. More people are moving here every day, and understanding what's different and what's next has never been more important. So, put on your design goggles and join us in checking out the view. I'm Charles. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the Central District neighborhood and I've been a Seattleite for two years. And I'm Rachel. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the old Ballard neighborhood and I grew up here in Seattle. This week's show is titled Light and Day. Seattle has a reputation for being dark and rainy, but in reality, that's only true for a portion of the year, namely the wintertime. As you might imagine, during those months, access to light and the quality of that light is really important, and that's where lighting designers come in. In a city where each of us has a unique relationship with light, how do Seattleites appreciate light differently? What is it about light in Seattle that is so special? How is it a unifying factor for our oldest and our newest residents? More importantly, how can all designers do a better job of integrating light into their work? To help us answer those questions and more, we are joined by CJ Brockway, principal at Spark Lab, a lighting design practice here in Seattle. CJ, thank you so much for making time to sit and chat with us. Glad to. So to start off, how long have you been in Seattle? I am a third generation Seattleite. Oh my gosh. You might be the longest tenured guest we've ever had. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I now I have to check previous generations of previous guests. <laughs> I'm going to have to send an email to every single one of them. <laughs> what neighborhoods have you lived in and where do you live now? I've lived in a bunch of places. I've lived on Capitol Hill. I've lived in Queen Anne. I've lived in... Greenwood in the U District. Now I live in Columbia City. I was in Hillman City. I grew up in what was unincorporated King County and is now Sammamish. There wasn't a high school around while I was there. I graduated in 93, to put it in perspective. <laughs> I grew up on the east side and I moved away from the east side as soon as I could. Was there like a neighborhood and a time period in that neighborhood that you you were most nostalgic for? No. <laughs> no none. <laughs> Zero. I like the fact that there were woods outside my backyard. Where do you live now? So I'm in Columbia City, and I'm right a, a block off the main drag. Oh, nice. I'm not that far away. I'm in Judkins Park. Just oh, okay. Yeah, end. I like Judkins oh, nice. Park. That's great. What neighborhood did you grow up in? So I was in unincorporated King County, so the east side of Lake Sammamish, basically. How has it been adjusting to this massive influx of new people? You know, back when I was in junior high school, there were all of the people who were moving up from Silicon Valley because Microsoft was really just getting off of its feet. So that influx of people that we experienced in the you know late 80s, early 90s was kind of similar to what we have today, but especially in the east side. I've seen a lot of change in the greater Pacific Northwest area throughout my life. I moved away too. So I mean, let's to put this in perspective, I, I had to get away. So I lived in New York City, worked for a lighting design practice there for a few years. My husband, who we got married in New York, he didn't like it so much. So we ended up moving to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where he worked for the Santa Fe Opera. My husband is the technical director at Act Theater. We moved out of New York City to experience something different had a kind of infatuation with the desert desert southwest, in part because of light. And then I have family here and my grandmother who I her hair color that is uh, reflective of. <laughs> 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 yes, I bleached my hair for my grandmother. And so I really wanted to be back here kind of before she, she went. So was it New York to Santa Fe, back to Seattle? Not what was that like just in general, but because having lived in New York myself, 
light is a really almost as big of a deal there, but in an extremely different way because it's so artificial all the time. You only get brief glimpses because of the canyon-esque But canyon-esque is kind of interesting comparing it to New Mexico as well. Well, to answer the first part of your question, moving back to Seattle, I had a little cry because I couldn't go to BAM anymore. But fortunately, we have places like On the Boards that do some really progressive work. I love art and I love the ability to really see progressive creative works. Part of the reason why I didn't like Santa Fe so much, even though there's a contingency of really creative work being done there, I, I felt like it was a little bit quote-unquote, catered to the blue hairs, which I don't even know what that means anymore. <laughs> I apologize for any negative no cliches. If you've been, because so I spent a week in New Mexico, if you've been in New Mexico for more than two days, I think you get that. Yeah. <laughs> I really liked the attention to native culture. Mm-hmm. Everywhere. Yeah, and yeah. I, I actually came back and was excited to go to the Burke and to learn more about Native American culture in the Pacific Northwest. And I think that we have a lot to learn from the Native cultures that are here, too. And I guess I've also sort of been curious, because I am third generation from here, like what that means. And, you know, like in this day and age, I like considering myself a Seattleite versus a, an American yeah. <laughs> sometimes. We, we talked about that a little bit, actually. One of our earliest shows with Haley Buckby, who works at Board of Elm, she's also a light artist herself. We were talking about the art community a little bit and how because of the Native American influence in Seattle, it's much more craft focused and supportive. And how even though you might not see it front and center in Seattle, that Native American influence is subtly kind of everywhere here. But it's so much more up front uh, in the Southwest, I think. I remember I had a really fantastic English teacher in junior high school that talked to us about mythological illusions and references in culture. And we would look at like FDA florist with the little Hermes on the <laughs> logo. Mm. And if you look at a lot of the signage and graphic elements here, and I mean, even the Seahawks, like there, it's it's very oh, much, yeah. it's very much derivative of native iconography. And that's, that's pretty cool. The confession of a realization when I was researching for this show and to talk to you, about how little, sadly, I as a designer consider lighting when I'm designing. And I specialize in interiors, and I know that lighting needs to happen. (laughs) And I think of things like the electrical loads and like things that need to be dark and things that need to be light for safety purposes. But sadly, and as much as I hated to admit this, it's something that as a habit, just throw against the wall at the end. Oh yeah, we need lights, let's draw them in real quick. And I was struggling to figure out why, because I don't think this is just me. I'm hoping it's not just me. All the designers out there are laughing at me. They're like, you don't think about lighting from the beginning? You idiot. It's just him. Um, I was curious to hear your perspective on maybe why that is. How did it end up getting left out of the design conversation, especially here when it's so important? I have a ton of respect for architects, and I didn't study architecture, but I've learned so much from architects about what people do. There's just a lot to focus on, and as an architect, it's you can't, you know, mechanical systems are hard to understand too. So what, you don't have to pay as much attention to that. If you think about acoustics, it kind of dabble into it, but there are so many programmatic things that require your attention when you think about fit and finish and like how you want the space to feel lighting is a huge portion of it but I think a lot of people think about things that they touch first whereas with light of course the cool thing about light and not to wax poetic too much well sure I mean 
Do it, wax poetic. <laughs> no. Now's the time on design goggles when we wax poetic. Um, of course, we can't see light. It's ephemeral, right? right? You can only see what it touches, what it hits, unless you see a luminaire, which is kind of a different portion of design. A lot of people think that lighting designers are fixture pickers. In fact, the first thing that I learned, because so I studied theatrical lighting design. When I transitioned into learning about architectural lighting, it surprised me that there was actually a big pushback. No, no, it's not about the fixture. And I was excited to learn about fixtures because here I had only had these instruments that I could project light from. And I was, it was all about, it's all about sculpting with light on a stage. And, and then I came to see, yes, it is. And in architecture, it's about sculpting with light in space. If you wanted to, we could try to like do a design charrette on what would be really cool to do to improve the lighting in your space. That'd be really fun. Maybe we can do that later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's going to be translated on radio too well. And I was like, then, then we they sketched for silence for 15 minutes. It was the weirdest podcast I'd ever heard. And the other thing that's really weird, and I know that this isn't true with every lighting designer, but I kind of have to sketch to think. Mm -hmm. So like, I have to have a pen and paper in front of me because you think about like, space in three dimensions when you contemplate light. And I also think that's one of the reasons why people don't think about light is because we tend to be focused on plans and elevation views or section views, but we don't really contemplate that sculpting quality of what you see in the, the middle space. Well, hopefully with 3D visualization, it's starting to change a little bit. If you set things up right and you're using the right programs, it's easy to at least start to keep in mind what's in shadow and what's not. But I agree wholeheartedly. It's really far behind. There's also in like 3ds Max this you know magic ball that you can put in that just like illuminates the whole room without needing to think about what it's actually coming from. Mm -hmm. And that is a unfortunate reality that people forget about light because of the fact that sometimes in the visualizations that they do, that's there and then you just don't realize that maybe you have to think about it a little bit more. With HVAC and acoustics, it seems a little more straightforward to solve the simple problems. Yeah, I would actually argue that it's not. Well, because I've been learning a lot about mechanical engineering. So after spending a lot of time working for an architect, I ended up taking a little hiatus and I worked for a lighting designer in Mexico City for a while. Came back and I worked for an engineering firm that happens to be down the street here at the Bullet Center, where I was working side by side with some mechanical engineers. And I garnered a huge, again, amount of respect and appreciation for what they do. It's not like electrical engineering. Electrical engineering, it either works or it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. If you think about mechanical airflow in a space and sound in a space, I definitely think that every little thing that interferes with the airflow in a way that's pretty... Nuanced and complicated. Yeah. It's a great way to put it. Nuanced, yeah. I think this is an issue of every artist having their preferred media. Light is your medium or sound or air, airflow, wind. Maybe that's why we're specializing to get back to your question about like why. I think, I, I think I'm going to figure it out is that it's... neither of those things define space, but light can. That's theater. Light and shadow is used so often to define space. Space is essentially some combination of boundary and enclosure. But there's reflected light. Yes, it isn't always used in that way, but light can do that. Oh, I yeah. love, I'd love to dig into this more, actually, because it really yeah, is truly, yeah. like, no, how do they compare? And, and Right. I just, and maybe this, this is all just my bias, but I think of light as far more magical than either of those elements. Amen. <laughs> I mean, yes, yes, I love light. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, you know, our experience of a space is greatly impacted 
by light, yes, but also by the airflow and by the way that it sounds and all these things. And they're, it's just hard to quantify because they are also technical and, and science-based and all these things that we don't have, at least speaking for me here, I don't have the education to support all of this stuff, mm-hmm. right? It's not been my area of study. And so it's easy for me to think that these things are not as interrelated as they really are. And, and then my experience in a space is greatly impacted by how the air is moving through it. Like right now, you know, earlier this this room that we record in, it's, it's not that big. And when we turn the fans off, it gets eventually uncomfortably hot in here. And that impacts how, how long we sit here and talk eventually, right? And Absolutely. so so does the lighting in here. Mm-hmm. It's changing as the time goes by. And mm-hmm. the acoustics are incredibly important yeah. to our podcast. We had problems with all three of those in this room, actually. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about that, we had to put these... I'm pointing up at the ceiling now for everyone listening to this, to the acoustical baffles in our ceiling. This is an interesting segue then back to kind of lighting in a way, because from a thermal comfort standpoint, from a human productivity at work standpoint, oftentimes we we try to improve lighting environments or acoustic environments to be able to allow people to mitigate distractions. And I'd say that half of what most lighting designers do is in fact really that. It's really trying to look programmatically at a space, figure out where light is needed and how to apply it in a manner that is going to be consistent with the architectural gestures that are at play, with the aspirational vision that the design team has for how they want the space to look and feel. The thing that I love about light is that you get that extra little, and I'm going to quote one of my clients, and this word tr- drives me bonkers, but he says magic. He thinks that light can bring the magic, which, again, it's not magic. It's me. science. It's <laughs> science. No. Yeah. It's, um, it's a way that you feel connected to the space around you, and sometimes it's, it's like, okay, Terrell. Terrell is the most famous light artist that we have right now. James Trell. And one thing that he said, I actually attended a lecture he gave once while I was in New York. I'll probably not say the words exactly right, but he spoke to this notion that people can sing in the shower and every once in a while you might hit a note that reverberates, has just that perfect pitch that feels just enchanting. And he said that he thinks light can do that too. I think that's neat. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. (laughs) There is a James Terrell exhibit that uh, I believe it's called the Nasher Sculpture. There's this, I don't know what he calls them, like a a space that you can go into and it has the opening in the above. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, we went to it a few times and it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so then, but then in a period of time when we had been away for a while and we came back, this massive skyscraper was built adjacent to this outdoor uh, sculpture garden and it had the way that the the curvature of the building was it was directing so much more reflected light from the sun into this sculpture it was like burning the grass i mean most of the art that's outside is perfectly it can withstand it can withstand that it can take the extra light but we went and we visited and there was a little sign staked outside of his exhibit that said it was the the artist has declared this exhibit ruined on account of this building over here and and you couldn't go in anymore <laughs> and we were just, I think I have a photo of it because we were just like kind of excited that he had put his foot down about this and been, made this statement so going a little bit we had a running joke on the show for a while that we would talk about the weather every single time and I really wanted to talk about wintertime for a second. Half of our listeners are in the Seattle area and half of our listeners are elsewhere. And we're actually recording this show at or about the solstice. 
where we get a ridiculous amount of light in terms of hours. I forget whether it's January or February. It's, it's early in the year. We have two of the absolute darkest months in the United States. It's generally gray a lot. The rest, we're still top 10 or 15 of the darkest cities. And so light here, it seems like even during the summer months is at this premium and people plan out their weekends of summer way far in advance, not necessarily because it's perfect weather, but it's more like it's guaranteed to be sunny. I get 13 of these weeks. I'm going to plan this out. And so when I was thinking about what that means for Seattle in terms of lighting design, I feel as if we should be, as a populace, should be talking a lot more about light than we are. You sent me an article uh, that I read a few times. And it seems to be, as far as I can tell, one of the only articles written, which is shocking to me, about the relationship between Seattleites and light. It was written in the 80s originally, I think. I must have sent you the Seattle Weekly article. Yeah, um, I want to give credit to Jeff Robbins, who forwarded that to me a long time ago. So I've been teaching at the UW, and I taught before at Cornish for a couple of years, a lighting class there. And as one of the student assignments, we read this article. And this is, article is called Oyster Light, and it was from the Seattle Weekly. And it speaks specifically to the quality of light that Seattleites experience in the winter months. And it is sort of this pearlescent oyster-colored sky. From a photographer's perspective, there's actually something really amazing about that because Harsh sunlight, strong shadows make it difficult to take really evenly balanced photographs. So having a slightly more diffuse sky is beneficial from the standpoint of the visual field that a camera would see. It's more comfortable for your eye. It might feel a little bit dreary, yes, but then I think electric lighting can help to really make the space feel fantastic when you have a slightly dark space and then that those moments of warmth. Mm-hmm. Architecturally, if you think about how Seattle compares to some of the Scandinavian countries relative to temperate climates, we're able to have operable windows, we're able to really design spaces that are more sustainable from a standpoint of energy efficiency. There's a there's an advantage to the climate that we have. Do you think we could take more advantage of the, the climate we have in terms of lighting design? I, I'm a little bit of a sci-fi nerd, and when I first moved to Seattle, and experienced my first winter. I was pretty well prepared for it because I actually am super strange and I really love gray days and darkness. And I found the winter to be really, really cool that there's there's this celebration of a lot of the neon signs that have survived the years here in Seattle. And there's sort of this Tron-like quality where <laughs> everything's black and then there's these sleek neon strips. And yeah, Tron and Blade Runner and that whole cyberpunk aesthetic. That's not to say that like, Seattle's this grungy place in the winter. It's actually not. But I feel as if, and I wondered what your perspective was, that we're not taking as much advantage of that as we could be. Yeah, I'd agree. I think that we have a culture of not doing things really overt in our public realm. We have, uh, we did have this really negative opinion of neon signs for a while, but I think I'm sensing that starting to change. I think that facades, we don't, we aren't allowed to have overt signage on our Mm -hmm. facades. It's not LA. You can't put like the logo of your company and a sign on your building the same way. And I think that we, we have this balancing act of like, Mm -hmm. it's awesome, but at the same time. It's funny you should bring that up. (laughs) When I first moved to Seattle, I lived in Pike Pine. And I'm not going to say the names of these buildings, but there was a building right next door that had intense blue LED lighting all over it. And it was so strong 
I did not live in that building. I lived across the street. That it bathed my apartment, even with blackout shades and light. And so I see both sides of that argument. It's really exciting from the outside, but there are, there are consequences. Uh, there are so many different ways this conversation could go. I mean, we could talk a little bit about health-related issues and light. Caution us to not go too far into that. Health and light is complicated. Um, we can talk about like the potential issues of the light that might enter your bedroom window and whether or not that is sufficient melanopic lux to actually re- you know, have some sort of melatonin suppression in you. Mm-hmm. I am not a scientist, but a lot. that's the thing about lighting designers. We have to like walk this fine line of like being staying tapped into what the latest science is saying about things where light's related to health. But it's also... Design-wise, okay, (laughs) we could also talk about the fact that, okay, you mentioned Tron. Mm -hmm. For a while, there were these really, like, every light fixture you were putting into an office space is like a linear, Mm zippy-looking thing. We've kind of started to go away from that. So I think as from a design statement, lighting designers have to really think about, like, holistic design moves. Are we doing things that are going to be how we want to feel in a space? Are we doing things that are impacting people's health? How are we dealing with the programmatic aspects of what the client wants to 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 have be served in a space? There are a lot of things that lighting designers have to kind of stay tapped into and kept abreast of. But if you think about what's like the coolest part from a lighting designer's perspective, I think that kind of back to that art aspect, how can we create something that is visibly interesting? There's something I read about how the things that we pay attention to are the things that stimulate our emotions, in which case, from a design perspective, it becomes art when you stop and you actually pay attention to to it and you you say, oh, that's interesting. I wonder why they did that. And those are the things that I think lighting-wise make me excited. So, for example, if you were to go to the UW Medical Center, they've got a natal intensive care unit. And on the top of the edges of the doors, we had a really shallow floor to floor space and we really wanted up lighting. So we have this lighting treatment that goes between the ceiling and the top of the doors. But there's this like subtle moray pattern that you get inside this lighting element that we worked with the graphic designers to get just the perfect like subtle motion as you walked by. And from a a sort of an artistic creation standpoint, we did it because we didn't want to create a space that would be too bold. We Hmm. wanted something that would be subtle and that sort of reflected the aspirational goal of hospital corridor <laughs> to be quiet subtle and and feel like an, a, a welcoming place for a parent who is you know dealing with a child that's in the hospital so I think lighting wise we can be making choices that help you to feel a certain way so I'm curious how much does lighting design get to play with thermal design because also there's the other side of the coin right where some types of lighting I know we have all sorts of energy code and requirement and stuff that limits on some of the stuff that you can do but how much do you get to play with I want to literally make this space warmer both visually but also the temperature will quite literally rise if I light it in a certain way with these certain types of lighting is it all about creating the sensation of it being warmer when it is not in in fact making the room warmer because of the type of light that you're supplying. You know what, your question you're asking is really interesting and I'm going to have to say I don't know. Electrically, the load of lighting in a space is actually pretty minimal. Like if you think about the uh, wattage of a a single human, oh God, somebody I think told me that 
back to mechanical engineering, you know, a single person is like, I think it's 100 watts. The equivalent in lighting might be 8 or 12 watts. So I think... Is that dependent on the type of fixture? Everything is... LED now. I'm right. not supposed to well, swear. Well, in but. Seattle, though, that's that's something also that people who don't live in Seattle may not know. In Seattle, the energy code is extremely restrictive. It's not like that in many cities. And we have to, like for most projects, almost everything has to be LED. Yeah. But that's not the case in other in other cities that necessarily. That way. Oh, is it? Throughout the country, yeah, the energy mm-hmm. codes are such. And and frankly, products are becoming more cost-effective that are LED. Mm-hmm. People don't want to spend the money on energy. If you look at the cost for energy in Seattle, it's like eight point something cents per kilowatt hour. Mm-hmm. If you go to New York, last time I was there, it was like 16 cents per kilowatt hour. Mm-hmm. If you are in California, it's even worse. Like, But no, throughout the country, the energy codes are, are restrictive enough that they're mandating the use of term efficacy is related to lumens per watt so we used we use high efficacy products and that's not that's not a bad thing right i mean back years ago when these more efficient lighting fixtures were coming into mm-hmm. into use they weren't as refined as or as they are now right yeah. you can have color temperatures that feel exactly like an incandescent light with an led these days and so i think i feel like we're finally catching up in the public about it not being a bad thing for it to be led for it to be led yeah. Yeah, and I I guess I shouldn't say anything negative about LEDs. The LEDs are great. They don't dim as well as an incandescent source at really low levels. So if you're in your own home, um, sometimes you they'll pop off or they might flicker a little bit. Now, it's all about getting like the right compatibility of technology. So your wall box dimmer works with the specific light fixture that you have. Um, th- these are surmountable. These are issues that you can you can tackle. Color temperature and color rendering are two different things. A lot of people don't know that. Color temperature is how warm or how cool the light is, and it's measured in Kelvin, degrees Kelvin. So like warm would be 2,700 Kelvin. Cool might be close to 4,000 Kelvin. Color rendering is how well you can actually see colors underneath a light source. For years, you remember like cool white and warm white fluorescent and how they just, everything just looked really gross underneath them. Well, that was because they had really poor color rendering. Eventually, they got fluorescence to be better, so they were color rendering in like the 80 CRI range. It's, it's one, it's zero to 100 is the scale. And a lot of incandescent lamps would be, uh, you know, close to 100. Now you can get LED retrofit lamps at Lowe's or Home Depot and just double check on the box, see what the color rendering is. And you definitely want to get something over 80. And if you can get something in the 90s, you're going to be happier with it. That's one of the things that like manufacturers who come into my studio and show me products, um, I'm asking them frequently, uh, why do you even bother offering it in the 80s anymore? Can't we just standardize on something in the 90s? You know, if you want to talk more about the cityscape, the city lights, the street lights, they're only 70 CRI. And they're those still a fairly cool white LED street light, but the color rendering isn't actually that great. It's a heck of a lot better than the high pressure sodium street lights used to be, which were in the twenties. Oh my god, they were terrible. You couldn't tell if your car was green or red. <laughs> um, but I still wonder, like, do, I mean, can't we have them be better than that? I mean, and that is actually something that other lighting people will debate with me on. Um, 
we don't all agree on the importance of high CRI with the way that your eye works at night. There are also, see, this is a science section of the show. (laughs) (laughs) There's like scotopic, photopic, and mesopic vision, which is like. Listen up. This is the part of the show that concerns you. I'm so tuned in right now. Yeah, I'm like... <laughs> uh, but basically in, in city environments, we're really working with mesopic vision, which is where your eye is constantly adjusting to kind of darkness and electric light. If you were way out in like the really darkness of the countryside, it would be, you know, scotopic vision. Photopic is what we experience during the day. I still think color rendering is really important. And I'm trying to push for that. Sold me. I recently learned that Seattle City Light is contemplating changing all of the residential street lights to 3,000 Kelvin. Okay, so that means warm. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, damn. I was uh, like, there's maybe. literally one outside of my bedroom. Maybe, yeah. What does this mean for me right now? Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> so I've talked to a couple other lighting people, and they've been like, huh, all right, whatever. And then I've talked to But that's to a big deal, yeah. If your bedroom's on the third floor of any building, it's a pretty big deal. Yeah. yeah. So when they changed from high-pressure sodium to LED, it went from ugly pumpkin yellow warm mm-hmm. to kind of cool white, which people found a little bit shocking. Seattle City Light is fantastic utility, but they got a lot of complaints. And so my... And I don't know this to be a fact. All I know is that I am told that they are going to be changing the residential streetlights to 3,000K. And I'm, I, I think I've decided that I don't like that. So Moonlight is really pretty similar to 4,000K, which is what they currently have. So if you compare the streetlight out your window to Moonlight, it's actually kind of similar. Design-wise... I kind of want the urban cores, the little retail hubs. I want my my neighborhood to be warm light. I kind of want the rest of the city to be cool. I want to have more of a connection to nature. What are the neighborhoods that you say that are more connected to moonlight versus, you know, so I live on the third story. I The street light is literally yeah, at I my level. I saw your eyes go really wide. I, said, <laughs> I, was, I was like, like this is lives on the third floor. directly Rachel, applicable like, to me. <laughs> We endeavor to have less blue light in our lives after a certain hour, right? Because we're supposed to. Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, is that like a myth? Well, so... Oh, I'm so excited to hear this. Yeah, I'm going to look at my phone a whole lot more. I really want my friend Erica to be part of this conversation (laughs) because she is a lighting scientist guru uh, who I would want to put you in touch with. So there was a, a... a policy report that was put out by the American Medical Association a couple of years ago, which was in favor of getting rid of bluish colored light wherever possible. Unfortunately, they started to go down a path of research and information that was really well-founded in science, but what they didn't know is that actually you can have the same melanopic lux factor in a warm color temperature source that you can in a cooler color temperature source. It's all very much about the very specific spectral distribution of that light source. Mm -hmm. So there was an erroneous statement, which then the two main lighting associations, the Illuminating Engineering Society and the International Association of Lighting Designers, they tried to dispute this and put out articles saying, whoa, 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 don't make policy on this and recommendations on this yet. That's not necessarily a proven thing. And honestly, and, and there's like a report I could send a link to that is sort of the rebuttal to it. It's just tough because 
you know, they've done studies to try to take a look at how much light it takes to actually suppress your melatonin. And you need a pretty specific amount of light at the back of your retina. And maybe you're getting that from the light coming in through your bedroom window. Maybe not. Um, you need it for a certain duration. You need it like at a certain time of day consistently. Um, I think they were able to debunk the fact that if you turn your iPhone to the warm mode versus the cool mode, it actually doesn't do anything. But all of this being said, I'm not just trying to be a naysayer. I just, it's just hard because you, you want, you don't want to be harmful. You don't want any sort of impact on humans, flora and fauna to be something that you've been contributing to. But we do have a tendency to jump the gun and make policy that these things are way more complicated. Let's say for a minute you've been put in charge of all the lighting in the city of Seattle and you get to implement whatever changes you want. Time isn't a factor. Budget isn't a factor. How do you change the lighting of this city? I believe in selective moments. I think that things are more special when you have contrast. I think that darkness should be embraced in places where we're okay with that. And I think that we should allow things to dazzle in other spots that really have the ability to impact humans and our activities. I think that we should light up the cranes in the port. I have a friend who really wants to do that. I think that there's going to be a lighting festival in Seattle in October. Oh, we cool. Sh we should embrace temporary light installations. Yeah, check it out, Borealis Festival of Light. There are historic landmarks and... Oh my God, I want to relight the pack medical towers on the north end of Beacon Hill so badly. I've been trying to do that for years and I haven't really been trying very hard, but I would really <laughs> like to do that. If anybody knows how to let me do that, I would love to do that. I want to see like crows flying in and out of the windows. It's such a neat gothic spot. Projection is different than lighting. Projection artists are not necessarily, they're not lighting designers necessarily, but they do light art that's great. Um, I want to see, you know, what Vio, uh, Leo Villarreal did for the Bay, Bay Lights down in San Francisco was terrific. It granted really um, uh, difficult saltwater corrosive environment, so it's hard to maintain something like that. So embrace temporary and let things change. Lighting has a huge carbon footprint, so let's try to find ways to reuse things. I think I think we could shape our space in spots and moments. Yeah, it was really poetic. It was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been fantastic. You're welcome. This is actually our 20th recording. We've been what? doing this for a year. So thank you for being our 20th. We just high five. That's what that sound was. Whoever you are, thank you for listening to our show. This is our first year. We're really excited for the coming year. Thanks. Our next night school event will be right around the corner. Let's keep a lookout on our social media for that. The last one was really, really fun. It will be held here at Board and Vellum on 15th Avenue in Capitol Hill. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter or the blog on boardandvellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there every day. And as always, please stop by anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we'll see you all in a few weeks.